Okay, so I am here with Adrian Tomina, who was most recently the author of Scenes from an Impending Marriage. Adrian, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. Native Californian. That's right. Another guy who uh, did the Sacramento thing, did the Bay Area we, thing. We did our time in, we did in our Sacramento. Time, and we're here we are in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to get into the ineluctable autobiographical angle through a, a different mechanism <laughs> yeah. before. Um, interviewers, critics, they've all said, oh, well... Tomine is totally autobiographical, but here you are tempting fate again with the subtitle of the book where you have prenuptial uh, memoir. Right. Um, you mentioned in the introduction for 32 Stories that you learned the useful trick of taking a personal experience and veiling it with a sex change or two. Right. Um, so we have to talk about this, but I'm going to ask you, which of your characters is least like you? How much of scenes emerged out of your reality, or is there some liberation, so to speak, uh, in fabrication. Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, everybody has been focusing on the autobiographical nature of this book, and right. I think some of the promotional materials are talking about how it's such a personal work or something, but I think um, in in truth, it's uh, in some ways, well, I wouldn't say the least personal, but it's 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 certainly no more personal than than the other books, yeah. um, and and I think um, that definitely in the in the fictional stories, I feel a lot of the the freedom that you referred to, and um, and the flip side of that is there's an inhibition that comes along with you know drawing yourself as as the main character, and um, um, I think this book is all. This current one is all definitely drawn from from real experience, but uh, very carefully edited and, and selected. Yeah. yeah. Start starting with the first story where we see the scratched out words of names and places and the like, um, which, to my mind, didn't necessarily mean privacy, but possibly meant uh, an ode to the Victorian literature, where you would have the first letter and then the, the line yeah. long after that. Yeah, uh, and also just I, I think. This was the first time I just uh, embraced the idea that this would be sort of intended for as wide of an audience as possible. So it sort of set up the the ending where I have have the one the one swear word of the book sort of scratched yeah. out too. So it yeah. um, doesn't quite jump out as much as as it would otherwise. So so wait a minute. I understood that this started off as something to be disseminated to wedding guests. Yes, yeah, right. Okay, so. Was it always intended for public consumption? No. No. No, the, the original version of it was um, slimmer. There were fewer pages, and it was, it was basically just Xeroxed and, and hand-assembled. And it was meant to just be given out at, uh, at the wedding. So the only audience was really going to be our, our close friends and family. Yeah. Well, this is interesting because 32 stories came back in a third life, I, I suppose. Yeah by having that box of mini-comics. Right. Um, and it seemed to me from the introduction that it also came about under a certain amount of duress. I'm wondering if, uh, if people have to sort of push you or kick you into getting things published these days, or, or how, well, how does this come about? I, I think that um, if, if someone really wanted to, to kind of read between the lines and investigate, the, the dedication of this book explains a lot about why it, it it's now in stores. Um, 
because it's dedicated to Nora, who's my one-year-old daughter. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, so the Father's Day fa- Father's Fun? Or yeah, exactly. Fun? I mean, a lot of people uh, are confused. They said, well, in the book, you say your Sarah's uh, wife, your wife's name is Sarah. Yeah. Who's this Nora that this book's dedicated to? But um, Your mistress, I thought. Right, yeah, my, my Irish mistress. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my wife was actually joking about that and saying, like, no one ever has an Irish mistress. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it was... Um, I mean, there were a lot of reasons that went into the the, the decision to actually publish it. But um, if I'm if I'm honest, one of them definitely was just the a bit of that uh, new father panic of of I got a I've got a life that I'm responsible for other than mine now. And, yeah. Um, so that was that was part of the thought process. Uh, at, at the same time, there was also um, the, the 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 element of just how off the beaten path this this book was for me and that was appealing because I feel like when I finished my previous book um, and sort of digested a lot of the reviews and the response that it was really clear to me that the whatever it is that I publish next had to be pretty different yeah you know I think um, I think people had their fill of that specific tone and that kind of meticulous realistic style of drawing and um, you know, no, I don't. I don't think it was. Um, well, you know, I take I take the the the, the criticisms of that. I, I I took to heart not in that it was poorly done, but that uh, I've been I'd been putting out a lot of that in that same vein for for a number of years. Yeah. So I didn't even really have a, a plan of what I was gonna do next. Um, but then it was kind of a a relief to me when I realized I had I basically had a, a complete book just sitting in my sketchbook, and it was. Uh, you know, as dramatic of a of a change as, as I would as I was looking for. Well, we brought up a number of things just in the first few minutes right. that are really I, I interesting. I, I, and, I, and I derailed I, you a little. No, bit no, already. no. It's great. I love this. Um, working on art for money, working yeah. on art for audience response, and then simultaneously mining from your own personal life to generate narratives that often take a, an immense amount of time. Uh, in the case of shortcomings, four years. So. This leads me to wonder whether there's possibly a, a double-edged sword here if you are revolving your creative process around what the audience is telling you. Clearly, you still read reviews. Yeah. Clearly, there is an interest to stay in this business, obviously. But but on, on the other hand, the fact that this book, this latest volume, came from sort of a, a safe place where you were... Uh, almost uh, buffered by the possibility of critics dissecting every little aspect of your work. I, I mean, how does this work? How do, you, how do you gravitate between the two? Or is it all one unified theory here, so to speak? No, I think, I think you, you touched on a lot of the, the, the things that were in my mind, really, because the, um, this, this wedding book is definitely uh, kind of like the most breezy and, and loose and, and um, just... Uh, I guess uh, you know a word that's rarely applied to my work, but fun, you know. And I think that uh, it was because of what you're talking about—the idea that it basically wasn't meant to be published, and that um, no one but uh, a handful of people that I knew and, and loved would be would be seeing it. And and really, I mean, the only even even though I knew the people at the wedding would be seeing it, the only real audience I had in mind when I was creating it was my my wife Sarah. And, yeah. Um, a lot of it was just uh, a question of of not is this going to be 
a great strip or is this going to be beautifully drawn or anything like that but just um, is this going to make her chuckle at the end of the day you yeah. know so really she's your first audience for this especially yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you see that being your she's going to be your future audience her and Nora perhaps yeah well I mean I mean, how do you insulate yourself from, like, the, the constant probing? Well, I mean, whether I like it or not, she's always going to be my first audience, yeah. just by the nature of working at home and and uh, her, her curiosity when she strolls through my studio each day. She does take a look at what I'm working on. Um, but it's, it's uh, at least so far, has been um, actually a real asset to me because she's... Um, She's she's very she's more well read than I am. She used to work in publishing and she has editing editing experience and um, so she she also uh, along with that knows the fine art of of dealing with the fragile ego of of the of the writer or the yeah. artist um, and she also just has a has a really good sense of humor and I think that she's um, uh, if anything uh, encouraged me uh, over the years. To, to try and um, tap into that a little bit more in, in my work. This also leads me to ask you how much of your work is motivated by simply reading stories or being familiar with stories. I mean, obviously, you're going to get a number of observational aspects into your stories. Mm -hmm. But uh, given your dialogue, given your pacing, given your rhythm, given this concern that you have working things out with your wife before you lay it down, um, I, I'm curious how much just words, printed literature, uh, has, as opposed to, say, other graphic novelists and the like. Uh, how much it, it impacts how, my work? Yes, exactly. In terms of a, star, a starting point. Um, it, it used to be um, almost, I wouldn't quite say primary, but, but a, the most significant influence because at the time when I was starting out, there were not a lot of cartoonists that were doing the kind of work that I was looking for, that I wanted to see. And I think, um, you know, I think that's sort of what motivates a lot of people is they, they create the work that, that they wish was out there, you know. Um, of course, now the, the, the field has, has uh, expanded so greatly and there's just so much more talent now than ever before that, that there is plenty of stuff that is you know really uh, inspirational to me within the world of comics um, and of course I don't want to discount the influence of the, the small handful of artists who were doing exactly what I wanted to see when I was a kid and, and completely turned my head around and, and you know who I'm still ripping off to this day um, um, but so I mean the, the, the influence of, of Prose fiction is still is still strong. Um, of course, now that I've got a one-year-old daughter, it's it's getting harder and harder to find those <laughs> chunks of time to sit down and really yeah. get get deep into a and also get the work done as yeah, well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, this is interesting because I'm wondering if that familiarity with prose fiction gave you a certain advantage when you were starting out and a certain advantage now in terms of being ahead of the pack in a market that has clearly become oversaturated with tremendous talent. Yeah. Well, I mean, just because you read it doesn't mean you can do it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so I was I was reading a lot of books. I was I was also a an English major in college, so I was being forced to read a lot of stuff that was clearly above my level. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I guess I guess that's just uh, I think maybe there are some some amazing artists out there who will 
look at someone else's work that they admire and then improve upon it and say, now I'm going to do the better version of that. And of course, I'm not, I'm not in, that, in that category. So, uh, you know, my, my interest uh, is in writing that is, <laughs> is superior to my own. I'm not yeah. going to read um, books that I find terrible just because I can feel proud that I'm doing something better than that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. A lot of it is, is um, I, I just hate to use the word inspiration because it's not like I read, um, I don't know, you know, uh, any any great novels. I don't I don't pick up John Cheever's book of stories and then think like now I'll do something better than that. You know, it's um, it's it's more of a, it, I guess inspiration is is a loose term, but for me it's sort of a, a humbling, a humbling version of inspiration. Yeah, you know? to be surrounded by great writers causes you to give your best so you can possibly join the pantheon in some perhaps minor way or something like that? I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't even know if, if, if I uh, aspire that high, but it definitely <laughs> gets me to try harder than I might have uh, if I, as, as opposed to if I was still reading the same comic books from when I was a kid. Sure. You indicated in a Words Without Borders interview that there were only two job-related components that you really aspire to, and that was shooting to be in The New Yorker, and also being involved with Drawn and Quarterly. Yeah. Uh, in light of what you said earlier, I'm curious about how much you aspire, or what your level of ambition is. Be, uh, do you let people come to you? Is that how gigs work in, in, in your household? Or? Well, I think, I think when I was earlier in my career, some people might have thought of me as sort of a ambitious guy who was um, seeking out his, his goals and, and Trying to, trying to reach them. Um, my feeling now is that uh, as the just the whole field of comics has has kind of blossomed in, in the last five or ten years, er everything has just grown exponentially. So now there's more money to be made and younger artists are more ambitious and maybe even a little more greedy or, or more um, entitled or something. Um, so I think uh, I think the, the the times have have even passed me by in that regard, where I, I think I'm I'm fairly settled in. I've got there's not another publisher that I'd rather be working for. So as long as there's someone who's willing to just continue to put my stuff out there, I can focus more on the work rather than any kind of um, career climbing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess most of my aspirations now are being funneled into the process of the work as opposed to promotional things or, or distribution yeah. or, or, or things like that. Yeah. You want to keep things ex as simple as possible so you can t carry on doing the work? That's basically how it goes? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's... it's uh, every Everything um, is... I guess anything other than actually drawing, for me, is sort of in service of, of that drawing. Yeah. Um, so there's a certain amount of traveling to promote the book and, and things like that. Um, but it's uh, I, I don't know. I guess I guess in other in other professions where it's uh, more expected of you, that becomes sort of just this. You know, I mean, filmmakers, musicians. I'm, I think at this point, probably musicians like rock bands think of the tour as more of the real yeah. work than recording the album at this point, or at least it's more of the source of revenue. Yeah. Um, whereas for me, I'm still in a somewhat luxurious position where like. For, for years at a time, I just sit at home and work. And then every once in a while, I have to go out and 
face the public a little bit. But yeah, um, yeah I don't I don't really derive any great <laughs> great joy from that that yeah. part of the process. Well, facing the public. What about just facing the world? I mean, yeah. how how often do you have do constitutionals or things like that? Well, I you know it's it's I'm very. Um, I mean, it's it's a little different now, being married and having a kid, and you know you're forced to be a little more engaged with the world and <laughs> other parents and, and things like that. But um, even still, just in the last few weeks, doing some interviews and doing book signings, I've been eating cough drops like around the clock because I feel like my voice is going to go out, and it's nothing particularly strenuous for a normal human being, but but for for a cartoonist, just even to do a couple interviews in a day, you feel like, ooh, I'm I'm tired out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I wanted to also touch upon the actual art as well. Uh, there's one panel in, in the invitation story in this yeah. uh, where Adrian yes. is drawn. I'm sorry if I refer to you as the no, third person. I'm fine. just trying to draw a distinction here. Right. <laughs> He's drawn with his head up, and he says, Arg, you know the minute you say that, Sarah says, it doesn't have to be perfect. I, I become obsessed with making it perfect. Now, what was funny about this particular panel, and I can, I can drag it up if you need me to, is that aside from some little texture marks at the very bottom, there's very little in the way of decor in this particular panel, which is, a, is an interesting little irony. So I have to ask, just on this particular panel alone, how much of a perfectionist quality did you bring to something as simple as that? It's, it is interesting because this is probably my least perfectionistic book. Um, and that might be because I was funneling all those uh, obsessive tendencies of mine into the actual planning of the wedding. Um, that seems to be one of the recurring threads through this book of me like caring a little too much about basically, uh, you know, pointless things. Um, so I think, yeah, I think maybe that's, that's why there's this slightly more um, lively quality to the book because I was working on a strict deadline and I wasn't, um, um, fussing over it quite to the degree that I normally do. Uh, for me, it, was, it really was um, a big change to not even for a minute considering the work being reviewed somewhere, other than you know what someone's aunt might say, like, that strip wasn't that funny or something. But the idea of it um, being basically a, a glorified present to my family and friends um, it definitely, it definitely freed me up, um, but you know the, that that perfectionistic quality. Uh, it, you know, I'm I, I'm working on a, di a different book now, and and it's definitely back. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I'm from the onset, I know that this book is something that's going to be published. I didn't ever have a moment where I thought it was going to just be a, a private thing. So it's it's it's. Um, I'm I'm trying to find a way to to funnel that tendency into work that doesn't necessarily look like it went through that process, yeah. which so is tough. It seems to me that your perfectionism is very much centered around the expectation of being published, of being reviewed, of being edited, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's hardly uh, pure, pure artistic creation. Yeah. I mean, I did a a radio interview once where the, the host actually just came right out and said, you strike me as someone who's very concerned about being criticized, <laughs> which, I, which I thought was pretty astute and uh, a, little, a little unsettling to be discussing on air. But, um, you know, I think there, I've had a, there's, there's, it, it's, it, it's definitely just part of my personality to begin with, but I have had sort of a strangely 
scrutinized career. I think something about starting to put your work out into the world in a very embryonic form at a, at a young age um, really invites a different response from the public of yeah. um, um, almost almost like a collaborative sort of thing where there's a lot of um, input in terms of what I should be doing next or how I could improve or, or what I could do to, to fix things. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't really know for sure, but I, I've always imagined that some of these other artists who I admire so much who kind of burst on the scene maybe a little bit later in life and were fully formed and were great right out of the gate. I, I don't, like, I don't imagine someone writing to Julie Doucet and saying, you know, you might want to try using a ruler more often or something like that. I think they, that if there's a if there's a confidence in the work, immediately people understand that it's either I like it or I don't. Um, whereas I've felt that there's been a lot of of a response of I kind of like it, but here's how I'd like it more, and this is what I recommend that you do. Yeah. So you feel highly scrutinized by way of being under the scope since high school, yeah. not because you feel that you're more scrutinized than, say, other comic book artists? Or? Well, I guess I don't know. I mean, a lot of my cartoonist friends are always um, kind of uh, amused by the, the number of, uh, of candidly critical mail uh, <laughs> that I receive, uh, a lot of which I do publish in, in my own comic. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, why do, you, why do you think that they're going after you more than anybody else? Well, I don't know that they are. I don't know that they are. I, it's it's impossible to really dissect this whole situation because also at this point, I've heard from a few people actually who've told me, uh, "Sorry about that harsh letter I sent to you, but um, you seem to enjoy publishing those kind of letters, and I kind of thought it'd be fun to get my name in print." Aha! Uh -huh. So I kind of amped it up for, for the sake of, of publication. Yes. So it all kind of feeds itself in a way, so it's, it's hard to really uh, suss it out. But, um, you know, I think it's, um, it's, it's a real gift to be able to completely shut the world out and just create um, uh, without, any, without any of that influence. And um, I, I feel like there are, there are cartoonists and, and just in general other artists who are capable of that or almost it's not even an effort for them it just comes naturally and then I think there's the whole other segment of the population like me who you know regardless of what they say they do look at reviews of their work and they do kind of obsessively think about negative letters that are sent to them in the mail and um yeah that's so in a way that's why I felt like yeah I really want to put out this wedding comic because this is the first thing I've done since I was a teenager where none of those thoughts entered my mind during the creation of it, and it was, it was nice for me. Well, I wanted to try to assess the level of perfectionism in impending marriage. Um, the ranger in the book is very interesting because uh, the way that you draw him yeah. is extremely simple in the sense that you have really captured the fewest amount of details to get his ponytail up in, in, in behind him, or right. to get his, uh, the two lines of his crow's feet, things like that. And I wondered, when I saw him, 
And when I also saw, for example, there is one of the single panel uh, comics in there that you see the escalator in the back and it's almost this kind of disembodied right. uh, presence. Uh, how much you worked to get the, this level of efficiency or this, this almost... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to draw something that anybody can recognize using the fewest amount of lines. Yeah. Uh, was how, how, how much was, did you work on, say, for example, the Ranger? That was, that was what you, you said was exactly my criteria, especially yeah. because I had this looming deadline, which was the actual wedding itself. But I didn't have a lot of time to, to fuss over every single page. And so things like those details you mentioned, it was, what's the, 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 the quickest and most efficient way that I can project everything that I need to in this image. So like that that escalator is, is fairly poorly drawn. I mean, it's not, I didn't obviously f- figure out the perspective on it and, and measure it out correctly, but uh, it was just enough to sort of, that, that you registered it as a background detail of an escalator to make yeah. you think, okay, this is like a Barney's or something like that. Um, and I think it, it wasn't really by design, but I think that process really connected me back to a lot of the origins of cartooning where it was it wasn't people weren't doing graphic novels that they could spend five years on and um, it was a, a daily grind for, for newspapers and I think um, you know and and often poorly printed newspapers where you had to be simple and you had to be on time more than anything else and uh, it was it was kind of exciting for me to, to connect back to to what really was more of a, a kind of like the foundation of this of this this medium that's that's mutated so much over the years. Yeah. While we're on the subject of newspaper comics, I wanted, I've been wanting to ask you this for actually quite a while. How did you stumble upon the magic number of three panels? Uh, you see in the early optic nerves, there's a lot of twos, there's a little bit of fours. Mm-hmm. Um, by about, I think, the third issue of Optic Nerve, the mini-comic, you're definitely in the, the three-panel mode. You're starting to use it until it becomes almost an inescapable what quality. Do you mean, what do you mean by three panels? Three panels across oh, okay. uh, in, a, in a row like that. Um, I'm right. curious um, if there was any mathematical precision of this, because I also have to bring this up in light of the fact that there are a surprising amount of single-panel, family yeah. circus-style right. uh, strips within impending marriage. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, what were the, the baby steps to three, so to speak? Well, I think originally it was just about economy, because uh, I think, you know, nowadays, the more pages you can fill up, the better, because people want to have a nice, thick book to put on the, on the bookstore shelf. Um, so if you can stretch something out to 600 pages, that's even better than, than 500 or whatever. Um, but originally, when I was self-publishing or when I was first publishing my comic books through Drawn and Quarterly, it really was like, okay, I've only got a set number of pages and, and I've got a certain number of stories that I want to fit in there. And a lot of it was just fitting things in there. And, you know, fortunately, there's a whole, a whole history of cartooning for me to look back on and see what essentially works and what doesn't work, at least in my opinion. And so I think it was just um, my, my grids and my layouts were, were a result of those two things. Yeah. We've touched upon the efficiency quality in impending marriage, which I, I hate to use the word efficiency because it sounds like we're <laughs> some sort of public works department. Right. But, but um, I wanted to point out that 
There were two things in this that I saw also in the mini-comics, which was a return, of course, to the white circles of the glasses, you oh, know, right. where we don't see the eyes. Yes, and that's... also, um, for Adrian's suit and his pants, this really sort of scratchy quality where you can totally see the scratch lines yeah. when it's supposed to be all black. Um, between this recurring feature that goes back to your high school yeah. comics and the more sparse approach to uh, to the efficiency approach that we were talking about, I'm wondering if, to some degree, Impending Marriage was almost intended, or perhaps unintentionally intended, as a sort of second prototype for a new artistic direction you wanted to go into that was veering away after the, the no doubt, great emotional and mental uh, scope of, of shortcomings. Uh, it was... It, I think it seems more like that yeah. because um, people have to just... They, they look at my work through in terms of what gets published and the sequence in which it's yeah. published. But the, um, the style that I used for the, the wedding comic, and which obviously has its origins back in my mini-comics, is something that I've kind of privately been maintaining over the years, basically uh -huh. in sketchbooks. It's kind of like my, my sketchbook or diary style. Like where, the scrapbook stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly done with, with pens uh, rather than brushes. And um, it's, it's, it's looser, it's, you know, like you said, more scratchy. Um, so I think I've sort of, in private, kind of, it's, it's almost like I, I knew how to play piano a little bit, and every once in a while I'd go back and just remind myself how to do it, and now I've come back to it or something. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of my default uh, quick, and, quick and easy style. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it, it, it was, like you said, very uh, uh, a welcome change. Uh, after working on shortcomings for so many years in that, in that pretty laborious and slow style. And um, I, I think there's, there's the, the influence of that experience is bleeding over into my other work a bit now. Not, not entirely, but there was a feeling of, oh, people don't really mind so much. It's like um, um, no one has said to me, Boy, uh, I sure I sure miss the the, pers the three point perspective in the backgrounds, or um, your your line work isn't as slick as it used to be. No one cares about that stuff, and um, for me, it was a good reminder that for the average reader, it's just it's just the content, it's just the experience of reading the book that really matters, and and all these um, fussy little details that I can get hung up on um, really, really don't matter to, to most people. Well, this is interesting in light of what you were saying earlier about, uh, well, how much art do I do away from an audience to stay in shape? It would seem to me that a lot of this doodling, a lot of this mini-comic style art was sort of a way for you to maintain some artistic uh, passion or some insulation. Yeah. But on the other hand, if this ends up being the stuff that gets published, yeah. I mean, how many levels of, of private art yeah, do you need next? to... Yeah, what's <laughs> next? Exactly. I mean, what, what are you sitting on here, Adrian? Right. Well, I mean, a lot of it also is useful to me. Uh, working in this way is useful to me because it, um, more than anything else, reminds me of why I got into this in the first place, which is that drawing comics can possibly be immediate and fun and 
fairly painless. Yeah. Um, and I think you can very easily lose sight of that and, and become very obsessed with um, these perfect, uh, perfectly drawn, pristine pages. Um, and I think it's been uh, useful for me to, to look back at not just the old comic strips like we were talking about, but to also talk to other cartoonists who are more experienced than me, who have sort of opened my eyes to the distinction between illustration and cartooning, yeah. and that the best comics are created in the language of comics. They're, they're cartooning. It's not taking carefully crafted words and uh, you know joining them with perfectly drawn illustrations and um, uh, you know I think you can get caught up in that notion of the more precise the more careful and the more planned out something is the better it's going to be um, and for some people I think that works but I think for someone like me whose um, general artistics and writing style errs on the side of you know kind of constipated precision that that to sort of uh, reconnect with that more direct and um, um, expressive expressive uh, quality has been has been helpful for me yeah this brings up two issues I'll, I'll start one at a time <laughs> the sound words there aren't a lot of them like there's like a, a swoosh of oh. a salad bowl right. in um, in I believe uh, shortcomings and in and in this there's a scritchy scritchy when Sarah is actually writing on a pad on, on her, her lists it's interesting to me how you don't really use a lot of uh, I guess words connoting sound in your work or if they do appear you're almost allowing yourself one particular appearance of this I'm wondering if this emerges out of either the fact that you have this tremendous dialogue hovering above these characters, or if it's if you somehow see the visuals as this kind of sacrosanct landscape not to be impeded upon by something that is cartoony, so to speak. Well, it's for me, it's it's changed quite a bit. The, the book I'm working on now totally embraces all the conventions of cartooning with sound effects and yeah. puff of smoke left in the room after yes. someone dashes out. and Motion lines and all that. Right, all these things that um, uh, I think... I think uh, Dan Klaus made a good point when he said none of these things are inherently silly or, or um, I, I, I'm not sure of his exact wording, but he, he compared them to just various film techniques, which in certain hands can look ridiculous, uh, but could also be used very elegantly. Um, I think in my earlier work, um, you know, like I said, there the, the, the whole the whole perception of, of this art form in, in North America has changed so dramatically in the last 10 years, I'd say, um, that it's hard to get back to that mindset uh, before all this happened. But I think there was some uh, effort on, on my part almost to, to distance myself a little bit from the real cartoony comic book kind of stuff that I thought I was trying to break away from. Um, you know, there was uh, almost some, there was sort of almost a painful struggle for legitimacy back then, where you 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 wanted so bad to be not lumped in with those kids' comics, and you wanted to be respected by other adults and yeah. and things like that. Um, that I think that maybe at least for me, there was some possibly just subconscious thing that thinks, 
okay, you know, if I, if I have these big goofy sound effects or if I, if I don't draw realistically or whatever, then it'll seem too much like that stuff I'm trying to break away from. Yeah. Which now, of course, I, I feel no, none of that division and, and, you know, most of my strongest inspirations now are, you know, very commercial kind of cartooning that was done in, in newspapers, mainly, mainly for children, really. Yeah. On the other hand, that struggle to be recognized as an adult or to almost depict a realist situation has resulted, in my mind, in some interesting juxtapositions. For example, like to take Alter Ego. There's one panel where you have the writer and he's being licked on the ear by his girlfriend. Right. And this is interesting on a number of levels because you're almost playing with the idea of, well, we're able to understand through the narrative the internal feelings of this author and also his girlfriend, but externally we can see details that neither of the two characters are. Um, there's also a moment at one point where Adrian puts his hand up in the air and, and, and it's something that's similar to that, but I'm wondering um, if this was ever a kind of uh, science for you to sort of depict the, the internal emotions versus what the reader is seeing, an awareness of the reader prying into certain psychological details that, that basically reveal what they themselves cannot see. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, um, at least at least from my perspective now, the, the irony is that if you draw in a very realistic and detailed way, you have a much harder time of correctly conveying the emotion that you want than if you do it in a more simplified, um, symbolic way. Um, I think that if you do it in, in, in the latter mode, you enter into sort of a, almost a collaboration where the reader is gonna fill in a certain amount of the blanks and um, complete the, the, the experience in a way. Whereas I think if you're drawing it so precisely and realistically that um, you, you force these, draw, these characters to really act and, and, and you know, anyone who's ever tried to make like a amateur film or seen a, a, a low-grade stage production, acting is very hard. Yeah. And you can really go much, you know, you can go way, way off the path with, with bad acting. Um, so that's uh, definitely, a, the, the net result has been a goal of mine from day one, and I think I'm just approaching it in different ways now. Um, I think... Um, who was it? I think it was Chris Ware, the cartoonist, said something in an interview about how, um, you know, one of his one of his covers of his comics had a had a cartoon cat with tears coming out of its eyes, um, and it, it for me that really it was an interesting image and it resonated and I understood the emotion, but in in an interview or a review maybe it was one of his critics pointed out how just how absurd and grotesque it would be if it was drawn realistically, like a, a furry cat with with real tears streaming down its face. Um, and I think I remember when I read that I was like, you know, halfway through creating the book that would become Shortcomings. I remember having this feeling like I'm basically drawing that furry cat with tears streaming down its face. <laughs> yeah. Now what do I do? But but on the other hand, um, to sort of jump to the New Yorker illustrations really quickly. The thing that's interesting about those is that, particularly in the early ones, there's always some person who is reading a book. Yeah. Um, 
I, I have to ask how that came about. Uh, this, and in light of the fact that the most recent issue of the New Yorker, which contains one of your comic strips, uh, also has an interesting dialogue between e-books and and, and print right. books and the like. Um, why is it that the New Yorker? involves illustrative reading. It's like, oh, well, I, I have to show to them I, I actually am a reader, so I'll have a character reading, therefore they'll keep me employed or something. Well, what think, happened with that? I think uh, <laughs> it started out, I think maybe the first cover I did for them was specifically for, I don't know if it was called the books issue or, yeah. or the fiction issue, or it was something, but that was the extent of the assignment. So that was just my very vague starting point. And I think that it was just a case of that image worked and it resonated with some people and so for a few years after when a similar topic would come up they'd think oh let's get that guy who drew the people reading on the subway yeah um and so i think uh it just I, it wasn't really my choice it just sort of it just sort of that's the way the assignments came to me and it was um a bit of an effort on my part to sort of try and start submitting ideas that departed from that a little bit. Well, the thing that's interesting about depicting people reading is that, well, Optic Nerve, to my mind, I think, I think you might agree with me, started off as capturing a specific subculture. Um, what is interesting to me as we move closer to ebooks and as we're seeing, uh, well, people still read, the question of how much they're going to read, well, we'll see in the next five to ten years. I read, you read, but it's almost as if by even from the sort of lofty place of the New Yorker, you're still remarking in some capacity on a subculture that is disappearing. Uh, I mean, how much of your work has been about responding to a subculture or a culture, or is, the, is this becoming increasingly less so as, you've, as you're adopting more domestic themes along the lines of impending marriage? Or? Yeah, I mean, it was never a conscious effort. In, in, in the early days of my work, I would always be a little embarrassed when I'd see reviews, whether they were positive or negative, that would use the word hipster yeah. or Gen X or anything like that, um, because it wasn't my intention. And for the most part, it was uh, aligning me with some sort of, um, I don't know, I think some preconceived notions of, of cultures that I didn't necessarily feel a great affinity with. Um, uh, I guess... I don't know exactly what those words meant to everybody else besides me, but w when I would see that, I would think, but I don't care about fashion, and I don't go out to shows. I don't follow bands very much or anything like that. I don't hang out at bars or whatever it would entail. You know, I hate dancing. All these things that I assumed that maybe that was in reference to, I, I really felt actually alienated from. Um, I think there's been some some history of this of um even even in in the 60s of, of certain underground cartoonists getting tied in with the the counterculture of the time and and hippie culture and the grateful dead and all this and a lot of those guys detested that culture and they were interested in much older music and and much um you know more uh, refined styles of art and things like that um and I think even especially now, like you said, with my, my life has changed so much in, in recent years that if someone were to put a gun to my head and say, do more of those stories like you used to do about hipsters or something, I would have no idea. I'd have to like go on the internet and see like, what do young people look like now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, this is interesting. I, I wanted to get back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of gesture and look and the like. Um, we were, you were kind of getting into it, and then we veered. Well, that's that's perfectly fine. But how much you agonize over, say, the look of a character, or the gesture of a character, or the face of a character. I mean, when I talked to Alison Bechtel, mm. she talked to me about, of course, her elaborate photographic yeah. process where she photographs herself and then copies it so that she can get it absolutely right. Do you do anything along those lines to get the, the look of these particular characters right? I or? used to. Huh. I used to. Um, back in the in the Polaroid, Polaroid days yes. where I'd actually have a camera and take some photos and um, I, I think I would I'd put a noose around my neck if I had to keep working in that, <laughs> in that fashion at this yeah. point though. Um, uh, in my mind the uh, the results at least for me they don't they don't pay off um, and in fact it's it's if, if I rely too heavily on photo reference the results are actually negative yeah. I think the work looks worse rather than you know you do it because you want to make it look right and perfect and everything and in the process it, it disrupts the the cartooning I think that's my my work um, I don't want to make a universal statement because Actually, when I heard that Allison worked in that way, it was kind of a shock to me because I didn't see that in her work. I saw it as very natural cartooning. Yeah. So to her credit, she makes it work uh, very well. Um, for me, a lot of it also has to do with having such a limited amount of time to work now. Um, with a one-year-old daughter and working from home, um, that, that actually is a... Is a that would be sort of an impediment to the work process. And, and for me, it's um, trying to find a way to, to get things accomplished quicker now. Yeah. Well, what do you think accounts for the level of realism in your work? Is it the clean lines more th than any reference? Is it uh, sort of working upon a particular drawing inside your head uh, before it comes down? I mean, maybe it's a case where you know how it looks and you have to almost reproduce it on the page? How does, how does this work? Well, hmm, that's a good question. I think a lot of that stuff comes out subconsciously. I, there's um, sometimes people will say, oh, this, they'll point out one specific panel and say, oh, what a, I know that facial expression that you're, that you're drawing there, and it's so cool that you captured it. And it's always kind of a surprise to me. I don't, I mean, I, I am flattered by the compliment, but it's not like, Finally, someone noticed. I worked so hard. I, I was making that face in the mirror and taking photo. You know, um, a lot of it just comes through intuitively. Like in my mind, I'm sort of maybe inhabiting the character a little bit as I draw it, and it just comes out um, in some way that uh, telegraphs what I might have in mind. But my hope, especially with the work I'm doing now, is that this quality of realism. I mean, it's kind of an intangible thing, but my hope is that it exists mainly in in the in the in the characters and in the dialogue and in the subject matter more than in the actual physical drawings. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, you know, like to get back to what I was saying earlier about always sort of looking to to greater artists for for inspiration, but not necessarily ever aspiring to reach their goals or to reach their level but I mean I look at some of these older comic strips like 
Gasoline Alley or um, Peanuts, of course. And to me, those are that's that's realism as 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 I would define it in terms of um, capturing human emotions and and kind of the small struggles of, of real life. And and the artwork is completely uh, completely stylized. Yeah. And so, you know, I know that those guys have had some very special gifts in terms of how they combine those two uh, combine those qualities but it, it, it at least it gives me hope to realize that a realistic comic is not necessarily one that's drawn realistically I mean I think at this point there's very mainstream kind of superhero comics that are drawn far more realistically than than a lot of the things that uh, my friends are doing yeah. and yet there's you know I guess I'm speaking <laughs> from a position of ignorance, but they, they don't appeal to me in terms of uh, in terms of the kind of qualities of, of realism that I'm looking for. Other than that, the muscles are, are anatomically correct and the the shading is is photorealistic. I should probably point out that here we are talking about a medium that is prone to some kind of exaggeration, and we're using the word realism, one that I introduced, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll take the blame for this. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that in comics there is just too much hay made about whether something is realist or not or well like i like we were saying yeah. it's it's a nebulous term i mean yeah. um i don't know i i almost think it's become synonymous with 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 good i think a lot of people who who enjoy comics would use that term as a compliment but in terms relating to very different things i think there are people who are totally thrilled about what's going on in superhero comics right now and they would talk about oh it's so realistic yeah because they actually have guys dress up as these characters and they take photos and then they do watercolor paintings or whatever um whereas to me i also mean it as a compliment but i mean it in a a, a very different way i think you know i think most people are looking to art uh for for some sort of escape but also some sort of recognition of seeing some true experience of theirs reflected back in some way. And it, it doesn't even have to be a literal thing. I think um, it can be in terms of even even fantasy. I mean, I, I understand I was a big, big superhero fan for, for uh, all of my childhood. And, you know, I would never say that the, what what literally is happening in those stories is realistic, but I enjoyed them, and I think it was um, giving me some sort of recognition of some kind of emotional struggle that I was having. You know, it was sort of a wish fulfillment thing or something like that. But I think as long as it as you as you as you feel something, as if you feel that the artwork somehow taps into something that you're genuinely concerned with, then I think that you'll you'll consider it somewhat realistic or you'll uh, you'll deem it a, a successful work of art. Well, that seems a great note to end this. Adrian, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Thank great, you thanks. for having me. Sure.